You're listening to Zaria Hollow, a horror anthology where the veil between worlds is but a whisper away. Stay tuned, for the terror is just beginning. mystical landscape, the snow-veiled ruins of the once-bustling Shadowbrook camp, now a ghost of its former self, lie cradled in the arms of the wilderness. These dilapidated structures and desolate paths are more than mere remnants of days gone by. They stand as silent guardians over stories untold. Haunted not just by the spirits of former dwellers, these ruins are also the domain of more archaic, indigenous entities, mysterious presences that transcend the town's history. The valley, embracing Witchcrest Peak in its icy grip, resonates with a stillness that transcends the mere absence of sound. Into this tableau, a group of travelers advances towards Zariya Hollow. path meanders through the eerie tranquility of the countryside, weaving past the spectral remnants of Shadowbrook Camp. Here the travelers experience a tangible shift in the atmosphere, a sense of being watched by invisible entities as ancient whispers are carried on the wind. The distant, incongruous sound of a train briefly pierces the silence, an anomaly in this otherworldly setting. Its ephemeral presence sharply contrasts with the timeless, haunting ambience that envelopes the valley. Approaching the gates of Zaria Hollow, once known as the old Hendrickson Place, the grand estate asserts itself as a boundary between the familiar and the mysterious. Before the travelers, the stone lions guarding the entrance exude a lifelike vigilance, their watchful stone-carved eyes, imbued with a sense of consciousness, seem to assess the intentions of those who dare to enter. They stand as steadfast protectors against the unknown forces that reside within and around the boundaries of Zariya Hollow.
Good evening, my esteemed guests, and welcome to Zarya Hollow, nestled in the mysterious embrace of Witchcrest Peak, where the night holds secrets untold. As the quiet of the night envelops us, join me on a journey through the corridors of time. Won't you please come inside? Picture in your mind the winding corridors, softly lit by the warm glow of antique lamps, where every step echoes with the whispers of history. If you listen carefully, you may hear the echoes of the past as they regard you here and now. As we traverse these hallowed halls, notice the ornate tapestries that line the walls each one concealing its own enigmatic tale. The air is heavy with the scent of aged wood and well-worn leather, a scent that has lingered here for generations. Ah, we've now arrived at the grand staircase, its steps polished by countless footsteps over the years. Ascend with me, and as we climb, imagine the echoes of soirees and gatherings that once graced this elegant space. The portraits of souls long past watch over us, their eyes seemingly following our every move, a silent audience to the unfolding mysteries. At the top of the staircase, we reach a colossal wooden door adorned with intricate carvings, and beyond it, my study, a sanctuary of knowledge and enigma. As we enter, take in the flickering candlelight that dances upon ancient tomes and dusty artifacts. Tonight, our destination lies in the heart of 19th century Paris, the precise locality. The magnificent Palais Garnier, the Paris Opera House, a marvel that has borne witness to both the zeniths of art and the shadows of tragedy. Picture, if you will, the grandeur of this opulent palace of music and dance, a masterpiece to human creativity and resolve. It's every line and curve a beacon of cultural splendor that has drawn the eyes of the world. Here in my study, amidst the echoes of the past, I cradle two fragments of history, each a portal to a different chapter of the Palais Garnier. The first is a weathered news article from January 1875, chronicling its grand inauguration an event that celebrated the temple of artistry and ambition. But as often is the case, within the heart of beauty lies a tale of sorrow. This second piece, a stark contrast to the first, recounts a tragedy that befell this symbol of elegance. It speaks of the catastrophic fall of its chandelier, an incident not born of fiction, but of a harrowing reality a disaster that claimed the life of a concierge, casting a shadow over the opera's luminous facade. And whom, you might ask, captured this tale with the deft touch of a master? None other than a singular Frenchman, an author who danced on the fine line between fact and fiction. He crafted a narrative that weaves these truths with the threads of legend, creating a tapestry rich with intrigue and mystery. His book, A Symphony of Words, invites us to explore the blurred boundaries between the real and the imagined, 
between the glories and the ghosts of the Palais Garnier. Now, I must tell you, I have read many of this man's tales and journalistic articles in my day, and even if you think you know this tale, I promise you, there is more here than meets the eye. Step back with me, into the folds of yesteryear, to a time when the Eiffel Tower was still a novel silhouette against the Parisian sky. It is the year 1910, and the heart of the city beats to the rhythm of horse-drawn carriages clattering over cobblestones and the gentle hum of the Seine as it caresses the banks of the City of Light. Nestled within this symphony sits a cafe, a stone's throw from the grandeur of the Palais Garnier, where our tale begins to unfurl. Amidst the aroma of roasted coffee beans and the murmur of philosophical debates, you'll find a figure of convivial charm and robust laughter, Monsieur Gaston Leroux. His stature is as substantial as his reputation, his presence as full as the rounded belly he carries with pride proof of his love of good food and finer wine. LaRue, the esteemed journalist turned novelist, sits hunched over his work, his pince-nez perched precariously on the bridge of his nose, framing eyes that gleam with intelligence and wit. These are the eyes that have seen the inner workings of law courts and opera houses, that have scrutinized the human condition and found within its depths stories of intrigue and the supernatural. His fingers, though stained with the ink of a writer, are the hands of a man who once studied law, who understands the intricacies of both the legal world and the theater of humanity. His mustache, as full and dynamic as his prose, quivers with each chuckle hinting at a jovial nature that belies the dark tales he conjures. Gaston, a man who cut his teeth on the meat of Parisian newsprint, who covered the sensational and the scandalous, now turns his seasoned gaze to the realms of fiction. In the shadow of the Opera Garnier, where he once walked the corridors and explored the hidden recesses, his eyes, full of intelligence and a spark of mischief, meet those of his assembled friends. A storyteller's eyes, they are. Eyes that have seen the unseen, that hold the secrets of the opera's most elusive shadows, and with a voice as rich as the velvet drapes of the theater, he leans in, his mustache twitching with the anticipation of the tale to come. Gaston, have you read the article about the new excavations near the sand? They found incredible artifacts. Speaking of discoveries, have you heard the latest rumors about the Palais Garnier? They say there are unmapped secret passages. Ah, the Palais Garnier, a labyrinth of mysteries. It reminds me of some stories I've heard, whispers of apparitions and unexplained noises. But Gaston, have you discovered anything more about that infamous ghost that is said to haunt the opera? Le fantôme de l'opéra? 
oh yes, he existed. He was not merely a figment of the performing artist's imagination, nor a superstition of the managers for a spectral fantasy conjured by the corps de ballet. In flesh and blood he stood, donning the veil of a ghost, a spectral shadow, a spirit in the opera's halls. Upon my meticulous examination within the archives of the National Academy of Music, I discovered a startling correlation between the alleged phantom and the sensational scandal that once captivated the bourgeoisie of Paris. These events that transpired merely 30 years ago remain etched in the minds of the venerable elders of the dance foyer. Their recollections of Christine Daae's mysterious disappearance, the elusive Vicomte de Changy and the grim discovery of his elder brother's body by the underground lake remain as vivid as yesterday. Though none at the time saw the phantom's hand in these events, my pursuit unveiled the obscured truth. Countless inquiries pointed to an extraordinary existence, and I stood at the brink of renouncing my search, haunted by the spectre of doubt. It was my encounter with the Persian, the credible witness once thought a lunatic that brought clarity through his eyes and the undeniable evidence he provided, including Christine Daae's own letters. The truth emerged from the shadows. Le Fantôme de l'Opéra was no myth. It was the Persian's earnest tales and Christine's heartfelt correspondences that unveiled to me the poignant saga of Le Fantôme de l'Opéra. His existence, once debated, was as tangible as the quivering candle flames casting shadows upon the opera's walls. The Persian to me became the bearer of truth. In his quaint apartment on the Rue de Rivoli, he lay dying, yet his legacy was immortal. The stories he entrusted to me, the evidence of a lifetime. Christina's letters, once mere ink on paper, now shone with the clarity of stars in a Parisian night. They dispelled all shadows of doubt, all whispers of disbelief. Le fantôme, son ange de la musique, était réel. And so, with a heart, both heavy and exalted, I speak these words, not as a prelude to fiction, but as a chronicle of truth. Le fantôme de l'opéra lived, breathed, and loved. Amidst the grandeur and the whispered legends of the opera, there was one, a silent custodian of truths, whose revelations I was privileged to receive. The Opera House, a fortress of music and mystery, had borne witness to a story that intertwined the fate of its denizens with the spectral enigma known as Le Fantôme de l'Opéra. My relentless research, the pursuit of shadows and sighs, culminated in an unexpected encounter, an introduction to Monsieur Four, the examining magistrate of the Chagny affair, recently returned from the new world. His insights, though skeptical of the phantom's existence, cast a new light on the old mysteries. The Persian, once dismissed as a lunatic, held in his quiet residence on Rue de Rivoli the keys to the past. His death, mere months after our meeting, left me the sole keeper of the secret, the guardian of a narrative too extraordinary for the uninitiated. 
as I scoured the opera's vast underbelly, a place where time seemed to stand still, I stumbled upon a discovery that would forever alter the course of my investigation. Imagine, if you will, the solemnity of a basement intended to serve as a final resting place for a time capsule, a treasure trove of voices from the past, preserved on phonographs for future generations. It was here, amidst the quiet toil, that a workman's tool struck not upon stone or earth, but upon the macabre. A corpse, a relic of flesh and bone, hidden in the shadows. Could it be? The very thought sent shivers down my spine. The evidence before me suggested that this was no ordinary victim. This had to be the remains of the opera's most elusive inhabitant. The newspapers ever hungry for sensation might claim it was a casualty of the commune, but I knew better. The dead from that tragic episode were interred elsewhere, not in this secluded chamber. Driven by a mix of dread and anticipation, I delved deeper into the mystery. The corpse, untouched by time's mercy, seemed to beckon with a silent plea for its tale to be told. And I, bound by a historian's duty and a storyteller's fervor, was compelled to listen. So, with a heart both heavy and exhilarated, I extend my gratitude to those unwitting conspirators who aided my quest. To the diligent police commissioner, Monsieur Mifroid, the steadfast secretaries and directors, the venerable choirmaster, and most uh, notably to Madame Baroness de Castelo Barbezac, once known as Little Meg of the Ballet, daughter of the late respectable Madame Giry, the Phantom's own confidant. Their contributions, though modest, have been the keys to unlocking a narrative steeped in dark silence. As I settle at the table of the cafe facing the resplendent Paris Opera House, the grandeur of Le Fantôme de l'Opera's empire stands before me, a silhouette against the Parisian sky. Here, in this corner of the Place de l'Opera, life pirouettes around me, as vibrant and animated as a scene from the ballets within those walls. Yet it is not to the comings and goings of the city's denizens that preoccupy my thoughts, but the spectral figure that has become as much a part of this establishment as the very stone from which it was hewn. I am about to unfold a narrative that until now has lurked in the shadows, much like Le Fantôme himself. A story that has been face to face with many, yet recognized by few. In the presence of the opera house, where every performance is an echo of centuries of artistry, every whisper tells a tale and every shadow dances with truth. The figure that has so captivated our imaginations is not merely a ghostly myth to be dismissed as the lights come on, but a presence as tangible as the keystrokes that compose our most haunting melodies. From my vantage point at this cafe, where the pulse of Paris beats in rhythm with the passing carriages, I prepare to disclose the hours of passion and terror that Le Fantôme de l'Opera has etched into the annals of this cultural sanctum. 
with the city as my audience and the opera house as my backdrop, I shall recount the tale that has been whispered behind closed doors, shared in the intimacy of a shared glance and yet never brought to light in such a public rendezvous. Venez vous asseoir près de moi et écoutez. Chez Ami, come closer and listen as I, amid the clatter of cups and the murmur of this Parisian crossroads, reveal the face of a story that has long been veiled. The tale of Le Fantôme de l'Opéra emerges not just from the labyrinthine passages beneath the stage, but from the very heart of Paris herself. As the evening set in, the opulent opera house buzzed with anticipation. It was no ordinary night. It was the grand farewell gala for the retiring managing directors, Monsieur Debienne and Poligny. A world of contrasts and hidden beauty lies behind the scenes of the Palais Garnier, where grandiose staging meets complex machinery at work. Here, in this labyrinth of creativity, the air is thick with the scent of sawdust and paint, the lingering traces of sweat and stage makeup. The walls, lined with ropes and pulleys, tell a story of centuries-old craftsmanship. They rise high, lost in shadows, connecting the world of the audience with the ethereal realm of the performers. It's a place where every corner, every dimly lit nook, holds a secret. From costumes draped over chairs, waiting like silent, colorful ghosts of performances past, to props that have seen more of life and drama than many of the performers themselves. Amidst the backstage's penumbra, a figure draws the eye. His attire, the somber uniform of Parisian evenings topped by a cap of astrakhan. He is a pause in the rhythm, a silent note in the score of the night. His olive skin is a canvas of living history, his posture that of a silent custodian of secrets. His dark eyes, sharp and discerning, fix upon the dancers. <clears throat> fleetingly question, is he the ghost, the fabled spectre, or a man shrouded in the mythos of the opera? As they advance, the air shifts, a subtle perfume of intrigue. The walls themselves are listeners, keepers of the opera's heartbeat. In this space, history breathes watching through the eyes of painted cherubs and carved gargoyles. With this figure etched into their minds, they delve further into the heart of the opera. The further they go, the more the shadows begin to stir, the air grows colder, 
and the legend they've whispered about seems all too real. It is here, in the quietude of the backstage, within a corridor kissed by shadow, where the silence speaks as loudly as an aria. The ballet girl's gazes are drawn to the dance of candlelight against the dark. And there, in the flicker, a shape suggests itself, a mere suggestion of form, as if painted by the light and shadows in deft strokes. Le Fantôme is an echo of whispers, a silhouette shaped from the very essence of the opera itself. It is the space between notes, the breath between words. Its existence is the brush stroke on the canvas of legend, a fleeting chill in the warm air, the imprint of a legacy carried on the whispers of those who dare to speak its name. For a breathless moment, they stand entranced by the figure that holds the silence, a figure robed in darkness and in legend. It is the merest glimpse, but enough to quicken the pulse and spark the imagination. And then, as suddenly as it appeared, it was gone. Their departure is a madcap romp, a choreography driven by the primal, by the pulse of the opera's veiled heart. They leave the darkness to its true inhabitants, to the quiet watcher in the cap, and to the shadow whose laughter was heard by none. In the midst of this celebratory air, the dressing room of La Sorelli, a distinguished ballerina, became the epicenter of sudden chaos. Just moments earlier, the room had been a sanctuary for La Sorelli. She sought solitude, desiring a few quiet moments to perfect her dedication speech, a tribute to the outgoing directors. However, her tranquility was abruptly shattered. A whirlwind of energy burst through the room. Half a dozen members of the corps de ballet returning from their performance in Poliot. The room, once a haven of calm, transformed into a tumultuous sea of emotions. Some dancers caught in a wave of exhilaration laughed with an intensity that bordered on hysteria. Others, gripped by an inexplicable panic, voiced their distress with sharp cries. Amidst this frenzy, La Sorelli stood her poise momentarily faltering. The usually unflappable prima ballerina was visibly perturbed, her glare sweeping across the dizzying flurry of her colleagues. She turned towards them, her distress evident. Amidst the commotion, it was La Petite Saint-James, affectionately known as Little James, who caught everyone's attention. With her cherubic features, a nose sculptors dreamt of, eyes blue as forget-me-nots, rosy cheeks, and a throat as delicate as a lily. She voiced the cause of the uproar. Her voice, trembling with anxiety, barely rose above a whisper. Yet the three words she uttered cut through the chaos, sending a ripple of hushed anticipation through the room. It's Lepanto. La Sorelli's dressing room, a space of commonplace elegance adorned with necessities, a pivoting full-length mirror, 
a divan, a toilet, and wardrobes. The walls bear engravings, mementos of a bygone era of glory, portraits of famed dancers gracing the old opera, en rue le Pelletier. To the corps de ballet, this room is a palace, contrasting their shared chaotic spaces filled with song, squabbles, and the clink of glasses filled with cassis, beer, or rum. Little beast! La Sorelli, superstitious at heart, trembles at the mention of Le Fantôme de l'Opera. Her belief in ghosts, both general and specific, heightens her curiosity. Did you really see him as plainly as I see you? Little Jams collapses, overwhelmed. Then little Meg, jiri with her distinct appearance and sharp tongue, chimes in. If that was him, he's very ugly. Oh, yes! The dancers burst into a cacophony of voices. They speak of the ghost, a gentleman in a black suit, materializing from the walls, haunting the corridors of the opera. Ah, you see Le Fantôme everywhere. Indeed, the opera has been abuzz for months, with tales of this ghostly figure in a black dress coat, gliding silently like a shadow, unseen and unheard yet ever-present. The legend of Le Fantôme de l'Opera has grown monstrous among the ballet. Each dancer claims encounters with this supernatural being, sparking both terror and laughter. But beneath their mirth lies a palpable unease, indeed for several months now. The opera had been abuzz with tales of a ghost clad in a black dress coat. This spectral figure, they say, glided from top to bottom of the building silent as a shadow. It never spoke to anyone, and no one dared to speak to it. As soon as it was seen, it would vanish without a trace, in a manner that baffled understanding. This shadowy presence walked noiselessly, befitting a true ghost. Initially, people mock and joke about this spirit, likening it to a man about town or an undertaker. However, the legend of the phantom had swelled to monstrous proportions within the corps de ballet. Nearly all the girls claimed to have encountered this supernatural being and felt victim to its malevolent enchantment. And ironically, those who laughed the loudest were also the most disturbed by it. When the ghost chose to remain unseen, it marked its presence with events that were either amusing or disastrous for which, according to superstition, the ghost was always responsible. Whether it was an accident, a practical joke among the ballet dancers, or even a missing powder puff, the blame invariably fell on the ghost, this phantom of the opera. In the bustling world of the opera, many figures roamed in black attire, yet none sparked as much intrigue as one particular ghostly figure. This entity, unlike the others, was rumoured to cloak a skeletal frame beneath its black dress suit, at least according to the claims of the ballet girls. They even whispered that the ghost bore a skull for a head. But how credible were these tales? The origin of the skeleton story traced back to Joseph Bouquet, the chief scene-shifter, known for his practical nature and not one to indulge in superstitions. He insisted he had encountered the ghost, their meeting, not exactly nose to nose considering the ghost's apparent lack of one, 
happened near the little staircase leading to the cellars. Bouquet's glimpse of the ghost was brief, yet vivid enough to etch an indelible image in his memory. Whenever asked, Joseph Bouquet would describe the ghost in a haunting detail. Venez, asseyez-vous avec moi, mes enfants, et je vous raconterai l'histoire. Listen well, for the account I must relay is as true as it is chilling. Within the bowels of our opera, amidst the rigging and the shadows, I glimpsed the unimaginable, Le Fantôme. He was a specter, thin to the point of disbelief, his attire a mere whisper over a skeletal frame. His eyes, they were pits of despair, so deep and dark that the soul itself seemed to have been drawn out of them. Two large black holes, they were, as if the very essence of life had been plucked from his skull. And his skin, oh, it was stretched, ghastly and tight, not the milky pallor of the living, but a grotesque, jaundiced yellow. And the nose, such a trivial feature on a man, yet its absence on him was the most gruesome sight. It was so reduced, so negligible, that the profile was a mere silhouette of dread. Only a few strands of hair, dark and lonesome, dared to mark his forehead, as if afraid to associate with the horror below. This vision torments me, etching into my mind an image of such dread that sleep has become a stranger to me. This phantom, he is as real as the fear that now grips my heart, a reminder of our own fragility. Heed my words, for within these walls he walks, a shadow among us, a silent harbinger of our own mortality. Despite his efforts, Bouquet couldn't trace the phantom after it vanished, as if by magic. Bouquet's reputation as a level-headed man lent a certain gravity to his words, intriguing and alarming the opera's staff and patrons. His story prompted others to claim sightings of this skull-headed figure in a black suit. Initially, some skeptics suggested Bouquet might have been pranked by an assistant. However, a string of bizarre, inexplicable incidents began to occur, unsettling even the most rational minds. Consider the case of the fearless firefighter Papa. Capitaine, je dois vous parler d'une affaire très étrange. Une rencontre qui défie toute explication. They call me Papin, and I've walked through flames, faced down the smoldering breath of destruction without so much as a flinch. But this, my friends, this was no ordinary fire. No simple burst of flame. This was something colder. Something that made even a fireman's blood run cold. It was just a routine check in the cellars of the opera. A place more accustomed to echoes than footsteps. I was alone. Or at least I thought I was. I ventured deeper than usual. Lantern in hand. The light casting long dancing shadows against the walls. That's when I felt it. A shiver down my spine, a sense of dread I couldn't shake. And then, out of the shadows, it came. Not a blaze, but a head. A head of fire, it seemed, floating in the darkness. Nobody to speak of, just this... This blazing head alight, hovering at the height of a man's heart. 
I've seen many things in my line of work, but never a sight like this. I could not move, could not cry out. My very courage, the essence of a fireman, seemed to desert me. It was as if the flames themselves had taken form, a specter of fire come to mock the living. And as quickly as it appeared, it was gone, leaving nothing but the stench of cold embers and my own hammering heart. They say it was Le Fantôme, the ghost in the opera house, and I'm a man of logic, a man of reason. But what I saw that night, it defies reason, defies explanation. I stumbled back to the stage, words tangled in my throat, my very composure shaken to its core. So let them laugh, let them think it a trick of the light, or a figment of the imagination. But I know what I saw, and I know what I felt. It was a warning, a message perhaps, that there are things in this world, in this very opera house, that are beyond our understanding, beyond our control. From that night on, I knew that the fires I fight are nothing compared to the fire that burns in the eyes of Le Fantôme, a flame that chills rather than sears. A flame that consumes not the flesh, but the soul. This account baffled the corps de ballet. The fiery head bore no resemblance to Bouquet's description or any other. After much debate, the dancers hypothesized that the phantom could change heads at will, a thought that sent them spiraling into fear. Their dread was so intense that even the sight of a dark passageway or dimly lit corridor sent them fleeing in terror. To safeguard everyone in the opera from these supposed supernatural threats, La Sorelli, accompanied by all the dancers, placed a horseshoe on the table in the concierge's hall. This horseshoe, meant as a protective charm, was to be touched by anyone entering the opera, save for the patrons, as a defense against the malevolent forces lurking from cellar to attic. Interestingly, this horseshoe and the story behind it are not fabrications. You can still find the horseshoe today on the concierge's hall table at the opera house, a silent witness to the frenzy and fear that once gripped the corps de ballet. Listen. Who is there? He's out there lurking! Is there someone behind this door? Yes, yes, there must be. Please don't look in the There's no one here! Masorelli, renowned for her beauty and grace, lacked in intellect but was admired for her artistic talent. She attempted to calm the girls. My children, come back to reality. Nobody has truly seen Le Fantôme. But we did. And Gabrielle saw it too, in broad daylight. Gabrielle, the chorus master. Yes, and he said it was wearing a dress coat. He's superstitious, you know. Gabrielle had a series of unfortunate mishaps, all because he saw Le Fantôme behind the Persian 
le fantôme with a deathly head, just like Joseph Bouquet described. The tale of Gabrielle's encounter with le fantôme further fueled the dancers' fears, embedding the legend of the ghost in the opera house even deeper into their hearts. Joseph Bouquet should keep quiet. Why should he? Mama says, Le Fantôme does not like to be pestered. I swore not to say anything, but it's about the private box. Le Fantôme has a box? Yes, box number five on the grand tier. It's his. Mama attends to it. No one's had it for a month except Le Fantôme. You can only hear it in the box. Mama never saw it, but she heard it. Meg Jerry, you make fun of us. No, no. But you must not say anything if Mama finds out. But Joseph Bouquet should not talk about things he doesn't understand. It'll bring bad luck. Suddenly hurried footsteps and a breathless voice. Cecile, are you there? What's wrong, Mother? Joseph Bouquet is dead, found hanging in the third cellar, and they sang a hymn to the dead around his body. It's Le Fontour. Now, I will never be able to give my speech. The investigation into Joseph Bouquet's death offered no clear answers, ruling it as a natural suicide. The opera house buzzed with the grim news. The dressing rooms emptied as the dancers, led by La Sorelli, scurried through dim corridors to the foyer, their steps quick and fearful. The grand staircase of the Palais Garnier on a gala night was a scene of unmatched splendor and social significance. During such an event, the Opera House became a meeting place for the elite of Parisian society. The Count de Chagny remarked that no other gala performance ever equaled the grandeur of these occasions. The privileged attendees who were part of the high society and the arts would later recount these events to their children and grandchildren with fond memories. The grand foyer itself was a rich architectural marvel, adorned with lavish decorations and bustling with the energy of the attendees. The elite, dressed in their finest attire, would gather here, their conversations and laughter filling the air, creating an atmosphere of elegance and opulence. The event was not just a celebration of the arts, but also a social gathering where the who's who of Parisian society mingled, discussed, and flaunted their status. In this vibrant setting, one could witness the intermingling of different layers of society, from renowned artists and composers to the nobility and affluent patrons of the arts. The grand esclair of the Paris Opera on a gala night was therefore not just a symbol of the city's cultural richness, but also a reflection of its social dynamics and the importance of the opera as a cultural institution. Paris, 
had not forgotten the remarkable contributions of Monsieur de Bienne and Poligny during those challenging years, when success wasn't merely about dedicating one's life to their work, but also about making the ultimate sacrifice, that of money. Monsieur de Bienne had displayed remarkable generosity with his own fortune, while Poligny had been equally extravagant with the resources entrusted to them. Their dedication had temporarily obscured the financial struggles of the noble enterprise they managed. However, as time passed, rumors began to circulate about the administration's extravagance, which had been both artistic and luxurious. This led to challenges as they were accused of burning the candle at both ends, pushing the limits of their financial capabilities. Government officials expressed concern and the situation was exacerbated when the government commissioner, prompted by the Undersecretary of State of Fine Arts, confronted Monsieur de Bienne and Poligny. This strained their relationship with the ministry. Money became a pressing issue due to their substantial commitments at the beginning of their management. The political press grew increasingly hostile, drawing unfavorable comparisons with the previous leadership. Despite their efforts, the failure of the Endymion's Ballet, for which they had made significant sacrifices, left Monsieur de Bienne and Poligny disheartened. Three months later, they relinquished their positions to two government-friendly figures, that of Monsieur Armand Moncharmin and Fermin Richard. On the first landing, La Sorelli collided into the Count de Chagny, who was climbing up the stairs. I was just going to see you. Ah, Sorelli, what a lovely evening. And Christine Dye, what a triumph. Impossible. Six months ago, she sang like a door hinge. But please forgive us, my dear Count. We are in a hurry. We are on our way to investigate the news of a poor man who has been found hanging by the neck. At that very moment, the administrator was passing by them, who stopped abruptly when he heard the subject. What? How do you already know that, ladies? Well, forget about it for tonight, I beg you. Do not talk about it, and especially to Monsieur Debien and Pauline. They do not know yet. It would be too painful for them on their last day. Debian's fiery temperament was legendary, wasn't it? He had a vision that transcended the ordinary. True. And Poligny, with his knack for smooth negotiations and astute business decisions, they really complemented each other. But why did they leave so abruptly? It's the talk of the evening. There's something puzzling about their early departure from such a thriving venture. The air is thick with intrigue and whispers. As glasses clink and the music plays on, the mystery of their sudden farewell continues to captivate the imagination of Paris. La Sorelli stands gracefully, a glass of champagne in hand, poised to deliver her farewell speech to the departing directors. The corps de ballet, a blend of youth and experience, gathers around. Their conversations a soft hum beneath the grandeur 
of Gustave Boulanger's paintings. Ladies and gentlemen, we gather to bid adieu to our esteemed directors, Monsieur Debienne and Poligny. Most dancers, still adorned in their ethereal tulle skirts, exude a refined demeanor befitting the occasion. All that is except for La Petite Jeanne. Fifteen and carefree, she flits about, her laughter and antics jarring within the composed atmosphere. Oh, did you hear about the Fantôme and poor Jean, Joseph Bouquet? This is neither the time nor the place. Amidst the delicate balance of celebration and decorum, Monsieur Debienne and Poligny ascend the steps, their faces adorned with practiced Parisian smiles. But beneath the facade of cheerfulness, there lies a hidden depth of sorrow, unspoken yet deeply felt. We honor the legacy and dedication of our director. Suddenly from the exuberant La Petite Jeanne, an outburst shatters the veneer of festivity. In an instant, the jovial masks of Debienne and Poligny slip, revealing a fleeting glimpse of genuine dismay. A hush falls over the crowd as the reality of the opera's resident spirit and the shadow it casts becomes palpably present. The atmosphere and the foyer of dance, once a blend of elegance and controlled excitement, now teeters on the edge of chaos. La Petite Jam her voice quivering with terror, points through the sea of elegantly dressed guests. Le fantôme, le fantôme de l'opéra. A hush falls over the crowd as eyes turn to a face so ghastly, so unearthly, a skull-like visage that chills the soul. The spectre, a presence of nightmarish countenance, becomes the center of an unintended spectacle. The crowd's initial fear quickly turns to amusement. They laugh, nudging each other, jesting about offering a drink to this uh, phantom of the opera. But as quickly as he appeared, the phantom vanishes, melting into the shadows, elusive as a wisp of smoke. Amid the commotion, La Petite Giri's voice pierces the air, a shrill tone akin to a peacock's cry. The two older gentlemen attempt to soothe La Petite Jamme. Their efforts a contrast to the growing frenzy. La Sorelli, unable to complete her speech amidst the upheaval, is visibly infuriated. Messieurs Debienne and Poligny, seizing the moment of distraction, make a swift exit their departure as fleeting as the phantoms. No one expresses surprise at their hasty departure, for it is well known that a more intimate ceremony awaits upstairs in the foyer of singing. There in the grand entrance of the management office, a feast is set for a final, more personal farewell with close friends. As the grand banquet at the Paris Opera House reached its climax. A moment of great significance unfolded, intertwined with a reminder of the vast and mysterious expanse of the Opera House itself. The outgoing directors, Messieurs de Bienne and Poligny, prepared to hand over the reins of the Opera House to their successors, Armand Moncharmin and Firmin Richard. This traditional ceremony 
steeped in history and importance, was marked by the passing of the tiny master keys. These keys, more symbolic than practical, represented the immense responsibility and authority vested in the role of the opera house directors, including access to its 2,500 doors and countless closets and cabinets. The guests, aware of the ceremony's significance and the daunting complexity of the opera house, watched with a mix of reverence, curiosity and a hint of bewilderment. Debienne, with a sense of solemnity, took the keys from his pocket. As they glinted under the chandeliers, they were not just potent symbols of authority, but also keys to a labyrinthine marvel filled with secrets and hidden passages. He extended them towards Montcharmin, whose hand trembled slightly as he reached out to accept them. This simple gesture marked the end of an era and the beginning of a new chapter in the storied history of the Paris Opera. Richard, standing beside Montcharmin, watched with a mixture of pride and anticipation. Now in Montcharmin's possession, the keys were not just a testament to the trust and responsibility being transferred, but also a symbol of the intricate world they were about to navigate. The guests murmured their approval, their clapping echoing in the grand hall as they contemplated the enormity of the task of managing such a vast and opulent space. This moment, simple yet profound, was not just a transfer of duties, but a symbolic passing of the legacy and traditions of one of Paris's most esteemed cultural institutions along with the keys to its myriad mysteries. It was a moment that would be etched in the memories of all present, marking the start of a new and uncertain journey for the Opera House under its new leadership, who were now the custodians of its countless doors and hidden secrets. Thank you everyone for such a warm welcome. Here's to a new era at the Opera, we are honored to take on this mantle. Thank you, Monsieur Debien and Poligny for your remarkable stewardship. At the end of the table, a ghastly figure reminiscent of Le Fantôme de l'Opera sits silently, casting an eerie presence. Isn't that the Phantom? What's he doing here? I thought he was just a legend. This is unsettling. The figure speaks his voice grave and chilly. The ballet rats are right. The death of poor Bouquet may not be as natural as people think. Bouquet is dead? Oh, yes. He was found hanging in the third cellar between a farmhouse and a set from La Roi de la Ouvre. A tense silence engulfs the room. Debienne and Poligny look at each other, their faces pale. Richard, Montcharmin, we must speak privately. Excuse us, please. The guests watch in stunned silence as the four men hurriedly leave the banquet. In the now quiet chamber, the guests exchange glances, the festive atmosphere replaced by a sense of mystery and unease.
In the sequestered office of the Opera House Management, the new directors, Messieurs Richard and Montcharmin, are confronted with the concealed intricacies of their new roles. A hidden realm behind the grand curtains begins to unfold. Debienne and Poligny, their faces pale, share a look of dread. What is this all about? You seem troubled. Do either of you know the man at the end of the table? The one who spoke of Bouquet? No, we thought he was an acquaintance of yours. In that case, we advise you to change the locks. All of them in secret. For the rooms, the cabinets, everything. Change the locks for 2,500 doors? Not to mention how many closets and cabinets, what? Are there thieves in the opera house? Something far worse. Le Phantom? The Phantom? This is a joke, right? No, it's no joke. Well, we've had uh, instruction from the Phantom himself uh, for you to be friendly towards him, to give him whatever he asks. Richard, known for his humor, listens with a mix of skepticism and sadness. The revelation of a haunting ghost at the opera changes the entire nature of our new endeavor for him. This ghost, Le Fantôme, to what extent does its influence reach? Farther than you might think. It's not just the demands penned in the memorandum book. There are occurrences, occurrences that defy explanation. Mysterious accidents, disembodied whispers, shadows lurking where none should be. Le Fantôme is an unseen overseer, omnipresent. And the staff, the artists, they believe in this spectre? Belief is of little consequence. The impact, however, is very real. The opera must adapt, lest it faces consequences far graver than a tarnished reputation. Then adapt we shall, we'll meet these demands, but only as a temporary measure. Then tell us more. This sounds intriguing. What are these demands you speak of exactly? Let me show you. The management of the opera is required to give performances of the National Academy of Music the splendor befitting the premier lyric stage in France. Uh, if the theater remains closed for three days of mandatory performance, without authorization. If the director is notoriously over budget or actively doing bad business, such as not paying the artists, employees or agents. If at the end of his management, the manager has not done the number of acts required by the memorandum book, the minister may make him liable to a fine proportional to the average cost of staging each act unperformed. This copy is consistent with the one we have. However, we noticed that the contract book presented to us by Pauline Yee contained an additional paragraph written in red ink. It was written in a bizarre and erratic handwriting that looked as if it had been drawn with the head of matchsticks. The writing resembled that of a child who had not progressed past making straight strokes and who had yet to learn how to connect their letters. And this paragraph, which so strangely lengthened Article 98, stated the causes for which the privilege could be withdrawn. If the management delays the monthly payment by more than 15 days that they owe to Le Fantôme de l'Opera, the monthly allowance is fixed until further notice at 20,000 francs, 240,000 francs per year. 
Oh, is that all? He does not want anything else? Yes, there is more. And he thumbed through the memorandum book again and read, Article 63, Allocation of Premier Boxes at the Opera. 1. The Prime Avant Saint Box on the right, number 1, located on the Grand Tier, shall be exclusively reserved for the Head of State at every performance. 2. Box number 20, positioned at the stall's level, will be accessible each Monday, whereas the first tier box, number 30, will be open for use every Wednesday and Friday, specifically reserved for the Minister of Culture. 3. Daily reservation of box number 27 on the second tier is dedicated for the esteemed prefects of the Seine and the Chief Commissioner of the Paris Police Force. 4. For every performance, box number 12 on the fourth tier is to be made available to the Director of the Conservatory of Music, intended for declamations by students of the institution. Additionally, as highlighted by Monsieur Poligny with a marked emphasis, a further clause, penned in striking red ink at the conclusion of the article, distinctly states, Box number five, prominently situated on the Grand Tier, shall be unconditionally reserved for all performances, explicitly for Le Fantôme de l'Opera. And on that note, all we could think to do was rise and warmly shake hands with our two predecessors, congratulating them for conceiving this charming little joke which proved that old French humour was still very much alive. 240,000 francs does not just grow on trees. And have you considered what it cost us to not rent Box 5 on the Grand Tier and reserve it for a ghost for all performances? Not to mention that we have to refund the subscribers, it's awful. Really, we don't work to entertain ghosts. We would prefer to leave. Yes, we would prefer to leave. But in the end, it seems to me that you are far too kind to this ghost. If I had such a troublesome ghost, I wouldn't hesitate to have him arrested. But where? And how? We have never seen it. But how do you know when he comes to his box? We never saw him in his box. Then rent it out. Well, gentlemen, if you want to rent out Le Fontaine's box, you just try it. the grand auditorium of the Palais Garnier, the pride of Paris. This evening, it vibrates with an energy seldom seen, playing host to a gala of unprecedented magnificence. Gounod had conducted the funeral march of a marionette. Rayer, his beautiful overture from Sigurd. Saint-Saëns, the danse macabre and reverie orientale, 
Massenet's unpublished Hungarian march. Guiraud, his Carnaval, Delibes, the slow waltz from Silvia and the Pizzicati from Coppelia. Mademoiselle Kraus and Denise Bloch had sung. First, Mademoiselle Kraus sang Le Bolero from Vepre Sicilienne. And then, Mademoiselle Denise Bloch sang Le Brindisi from Lucrece Borgia. As the evening's splendor unfolds, Maestro Charles Gounod returns to the conductor's baton. Earlier, the audience was enraptured by his excerpts from Romeo et Juliette. But now, a deeper anticipation fills the air. Bruno prepares to conduct scenes from his grand opera, Faust, a composition of profound significance during the Belle Epoque. For those among you, my friends, who have yet to experience the spellbinding tale of Faust, allow me to draw back the curtain on this operatic masterpiece. It is a story that, in many ways, mirrors the passions and yearnings found within our own lives. The story unfolds with our protagonist, an aging scholar named Faust, who, in his despair over the futility of life, summons Mephistopheles, the devil incarnate. He trades his soul for a second chance at youth, leading him down a path of passion and peril. Rejuvenated, Faust becomes entangled with the innocent Marguerite, a symbol of purity and unspoiled beauty. Their tragic romance, marred by Faust's pact, spirals into a vortex of consequence and tragedy. Marguerite, caught in the wake of Faust's decisions, finds her world irrevocably altered. Her innocence lost in the shadows of Faust's desires. As the glittering lights of the Palace Garnier shine upon the elite of Paris, our gaze is drawn to two distinguished gentlemen, the Chagny brothers, whose presence commands the admiration of many. Observe Count Philippe de Chagny, standing tall and regal in his private box. At 41 years, he exudes an aura of seasoned nobility. His stature is above average, his posture reflecting the confidence of a man accustomed to his role in high society. His face, pleasing and well-formed, is marked by a hard brow and penetrating cold eyes that seem to assess the world with a discerning gaze. 
dressed impeccably in the finest evening attire. He embodies the quintessence of Parisian aristocracy. Beside him stands his younger brother, Raoul. Despite being in his early 20s, he possesses a youthful appearance that makes him seem almost 18. His delicate features are framed by a little blonde mustache and his eyes, a clear blue, shine with innocence and curiosity. His complexion is fair, almost feminine, a contrast to his brother's more seasoned visage. Raoul's attire, though elegant, carries a hint of the naval influence from his recent ventures, blending the adventurous spirit of a sailor with the refinement of a noble upbringing. Together, the Chani brothers present a striking picture. Philippe with his air of aristocratic assurance and Raoul radiating the fresh promise of youth. As they stand side by side, they are a living embodiment of the grace and complexity of the Parisian elite. Qu'est-ce qui vient ensuite sur le programme, Philippe C'est Faust de Gounod. Ah, je ne l'ai jamais entendu auparavant. Toi, mon frère, tu n'as jamais vu le Faust de Gounod Ah, you see, brother, we've arrived at one of the most powerful scenes in Gounod's Faust, the finale, the prison scene. Let me provide some context for you. Especially since tonight, we're only witnessing fragments of the opera. In the opera, Marguerite, the innocent and pure-hearted young woman, falls victim to Faust's seduction, a consequence of his pact with Mephistopheles. Overcome with guilt and despair, she tragically ends the life of her child, a decision that leads to her imprisonment. Here, in this scene, we find Marguerite in her prison cell, not just confined by bars, but also by her overwhelming guilt and sorrow. Her mind is a whirlwind of confusion, despair, and fragmented memories of her love for Faust. The aria she sings is heart-wrenching, a poignant blend of her lament for her fate and longing for redemption. Into this scene of desolation, Faust re-enters Desperate to save Marguerite, accompanied by Mephistopheles, he is horrified to see the consequences of his action. The scene reaches its emotional apex as Marguerite struggles between her love for Faust and her moral and spiritual anguish. Ultimately, she rejects Faust's offer of escape, choosing instead to place her faith in divine salvation. It's a powerful statement of her inner strength and a tragic acknowledgement of their irrevocable fate. This scene, Raoul, is more than just a dramatic high point. It's a haunting exploration of the consequences of our choices, the battle between love and morality. It's what makes Faust such a compelling masterpiece. Oh, 
Adaye unveiled a new Marguerite that night, a vision of splendor and radiance unforeseen. The entire auditorium erupted, a sea of patrons standing, their cheers and tremors like waves crashing in a storm of admiration. The hall had borne witness to Christine, overcome with emotion, collapsing into tears and then fainting in the embrace of her fellow performers. The esteemed critic, Fede Santva, immortalized this transcendent moment in his column, aptly titled, The New Marguerite. An artist in his own essence, he recognized the depth of her talent, acknowledging that on this night, Christine Daae brought more than her voice to the opera stage. She brought her very heart and soul. All who frequented the opera knew well of Christine's heart, pure as a maiden's. And Pedersen Diva posited, I risk presumption, but love alone does not a miracle of voice make, nor such a startling metamorphosis. When first heard at the Conservatoire, Christine Daae was a delightful promise. To truly experience Faust, one must hear Christine sing the final trio. The righteous elevation of her voice, the sacred rapture of a pure soul, are beyond compare. However, some subscribers raised their voices in protest. How had such a treasure been kept veiled from our eyes? Until this gala, Christine Daae had only been a modest belle to La Carlotta's commanding Marguerite. Were it not for La Carlotta's mysterious and unexplained absence at this gala, the world might have remained oblivious to little Dae's capacity to wholly embody a role meant for the celebrated Spanish diva. And what of Monsieur Debien and Poligny's role in this revelation? Did they know of La Dae's hidden brilliance? And if so, why conceal it? And why had she herself remained in the shadows? Curiously, she was not known to have a current mentor, others claiming she honed her art in solitude, the enigma deepens, wrapping the opera in a cloak of mystery. There I stood, a man of the sea, now adrift in a sea of emotion. The sight of Christine, so vulnerable, stirred ancient tides within me. Memories of our youth, our innocent play, now transformed into a torrent of deeper, unspoken feelings. I had to see her, to speak to her. Amidst a sea of faces at the subscriber's entrance, Raoul stood his mind ensnared in a web of emotion, absently tearing at his gloves. Philippe, his brother, watched with a kind, understanding gaze. Easy, Raoul. Patience is a virtue, especially here. They ventured onto the stage, entering a world alive with the night's fervor. The crowd surged towards the foyer of dance. Driven by the haunting memory of Christine's voice, Raoul felt as though his heart had been commandeered, leading him unerringly towards her. The corridor to Christine's dressing room was a throng of excited and concerned admirers. Raoul, with an uncharacteristic boldness, cut through the crowd, his brother Philippe trailing behind with a knowing smile. Doctor, these gentlemen need to leave. It's suffocating in here. You're right, monsieur. Let's give her space. As the room emptied, Raoul stood by Christine's side, watching her slowly come back to consciousness. A myriad of unspoken questions danced in his eyes. The doctor, observing Raoul's actions, seemed to understand the unspoken bond. 
allowing him the privilege to stay. Outside, the corridor was a hive of whispers and murmurs, as the two directors, Monsieur Debienne and Poligny, joined the throng of admirers, but found themselves much like the others, ushered away. Ah, the rascal. Never trust these young ones, especially when they wear innocent, like a cloak. But then again, he's a shunny, after all. Philippe, amused and somewhat proud, left the scene his laughter a light note amidst the tense atmosphere. His parting words, a mixture of jest and admiration, echoed the lineage and character of the shiny name. Her dressing room was like an island in the midst of this tempestuous world. The crowd outside buzzed with rumors and concern. Hesitation gripped me for a moment, but the sailor in me knew no fear. There she was, Christine, my childhood friend, now a siren calling to me from some mysterious depth. Her awakening was like the first light of dawn over the sea. Monsieur, who are you? Mademoiselle Daye, I am the boy who once braved the sea for your scarf. Oh, monsieur, what a charming story. Do we know each other? Well, I... <laughs> that is... Uh, we've... I must speak to you privately. Something important. Can you please wait until I am better, please? I need to be alone. Please leave me. I want you all to go away. Please. The corridor now felt like a deserted shore, the gala's excitement a distant echo. Her voice, that encounter, it had awoken something profound in me, a longing as deep as the ocean. As I waited, hidden in the shadows, the door opened. The maid, with her packages, spoke of Christine wishing solitude. I approached the door again, my heart a tempest of emotions. I was ready to wait, to endure, to discover the truth. Who was this man? Her words, so filled with pain yet devotion, echoed in my soul like a distant foghorn. The mystery, like a deep ocean current, pulled me into realms unknown, realms I was determined to explore. I waited, hidden, my gaze fixed on Christine's dressing room door. Time seemed to stretch on endlessly. The anticipation was unbearable, the quiet corridor amplifying every small sound. Finally, the door opened. Christine emerged alone, wrapped in furs, her face veiled in lace. My heart skipped a beat. She passed by without noticing me, her presence like a ghost drifting through the corridor. My eyes remained fixed on the door she had just closed. I expected it to open again for her lover to follow her out. Hmm, but it remained shut. Once the corridor was deserted, I crossed it and opened the door, stepping into complete darkness. I know you're here, hidden like a coward. In the dimly lit dressing room, Raoul embarked on a fervent quest. He searched for the source of that mysterious voice, 
the unseen rival who dared whisper declarations of love to Christine. Each corner he turned, every curtain he drew back, was done with a singular focus, his heart once a bastion of chivalric love, now battled waves of jealousy and confusion. Where could this hidden speaker be, this voice that haunted both Christine's dressing room and Raoul's thoughts? In this room, filled with the echoes of Christine's presence, Raoul felt her absence acutely. The air was thick with the scent of her perfume, a lingering reminder. The room was empty. I felt a surge of confusion, a mix of relief and disappointment. My mind raced with questions. Where was the mysterious voice? Was I imagining it all? Am I going mad? I left the dressing room, my thoughts a whirlwind. I wandered aimlessly, trying to make sense of what had just happened. The icy air hit me as I reached the bottom of a narrow staircase, snapping me back to reality. Which way is the way out? You can see with your own eyes. It is right in front of you. The door is open. But let us pass you first. What is that? That is Joseph Bouquet, who was found hanging in the third cellar, uh, between a farmhouse set and a backdrop from Le Roi de la Or. Raoul, his heart heavy with unanswered questions and a newfound sorrow, watched the procession pass, the mystery deepening, the shadows of the opera growing longer. He knew his quest for truth had only just begun. But within him, a flame of resolve flickered to life. He would not rest until he unveiled the truth behind the voice that dared speak of love to his Christine. Now, Monsieur Armand de Montchamon wrote such a voluminous memoir with particular attention to the fairly long period of his co-managing. One might wonder how he ever found time to manage the opera other than by writing down what was going on there. Monsieur Montchamon could not read a note of music, but he was on familiar terms with the Minister of Public Instruction and Fine Arts. He had done some journalism on the boulevard and enjoyed the pleasures of a fairly large fortune. Lastly, he was a charming fellow who was not lacking intelligence, since, decided to back the opera, he was able to choose one who would be the most useful managing director, and he went straight to Fermin Richard. Fermin Richard was a distinguished musician and a courteous man. Here is portrait that the Revue des Théâtres wrote of him at the time he took ownership. Monsieur Firmin Reichard is about 50 years old, tall in stature, with a robust neckline, without being overweight. He has good distinction and presence, a colorful personality, with a thick head of hair, cropped clothes and groomed, with a beard to match the hair, making his appearance seem a little sad, which immediately is softened by a frank and honest look, combined with a charming smile, Monsieur Fermin Richard is a very distinguished musician. He's a clever harmonist and skilled counterpointist. His compositions are known for their grandeur character. He has published chamber music that is highly appreciated by amateur enthusiasts. Music for piano, original sonatas and 
fugitives, as well as a collection of melodies. Lastly, his L'Amour de Hercule, performed in concerts at the Conservatoire, is an epic work which is reminiscent of the works by Gluck, one of Monsieur Firmin Richard's revered mentors. However, his love of Gluck does not take away from his love of Piccini for Monsieur Richard take his pleasure where he can find it. He is full of admiration for Piccini. He bows down to Meyerbeer, revels at the works of Cimarosa, and no one appreciated Weber's unmistakable genius better than him. Lastly, as far as Wagner is concerned, Monsieur Richard is not above claiming that he, Richard, is the first in France, and perhaps the only one to have understood him. This is where I stop excerpt from the review, which quite clearly shows that if Monsieur Firmin Richard loved just about all types of music and all musicians, therefore it was the duty of all musicians to love Firmin Richard. To conclude this brief description, I will leave it with the little factor that Monsieur Richard was what is known as an authoritarian. That is to say, he had a very bad temper. The first few days that the two partners spent at the opera were all spent in the joy of now finding themselves the masters of such an immense and handsome enterprise. Certainly they had forgotten all about the curiously bizarre story of Le Fantôme, when an incident occurred which proved to show that, if it was a farce, that the joke was not over. Monsieur Femin Richard arrived at his office at 11 o'clock that morning. His secretary, Monsieur Remy, showed him half a dozen letters that he had not yet opened because they were marked private. One of these letters immediately caught Richard's attention, not only because the inscription on the envelope was in red ink, but also because it seemed to him that he had seen this handwriting somewhere. It did not take him long to realize it was the red handwriting with which the memorandum book had been so strangely altered. He recognized the strokes and its childlike appearance. He unsealed it and read, Uh, Monsieur le directeur, hmm. at first glance, this letter seems to offer insights into the opera's affairs, perhaps from an informed source with a penchant for gossip. You see, it mentions the fate of our artists, new engagements, and even specific individuals such as La Carlotta and La Sorelli, as if from a perspective privy to backstage secrets. Uh, allow me to quote, uh, I know what you have done for La Carlotta, La Sorelli, and the little jams. It's as if the author has access to our inner workings. Read the whole thing, Richard. I am most curious. Monsieur le directeur, may I extend my apologies for intruding upon your valuable time during this period when you are undoubtedly preoccupied with decisions concerning the opera's most accomplished artists' contract renewals and the cultivation of new talents. Your conscientious efforts in navigating the intricacies of public taste, which can at times defy even my seasoned experience, deserve commendation. I am well aware of the remarkable contributions you have made to artists such as 
La Carlotta, La Sorelli, and the Young Gems, as well as others whose exceptional qualities, talents, or potential have not escaped your discerning eye. I trust you can decipher the illusions in my words, for they do not pertain to La Carlotta, whose vocal performance resembles the squeaking of a syringe and is better suited to the ambassadeurs or Café Jacquin, nor to La Sorelli, whose acclaim primarily concerns her, shall we say, undercarriage, nor to young jams whose dance, delightful though it may be, evokes the grace of a meadow camp. I do not refer to Christine Daye either, for her undeniable talent remains underutilized, owing to what I perceive as undue restraint on her casting in significant roles. Nonetheless, I acknowledge your prerogative to manage the opera in the manner you deem most fitting. Nevertheless, I wish to capitalize on the fact that you have not yet removed Christine Daye from the company. I kindly request that you allow her to perform this evening in the role of Siebel as her recent triumph as Marguerite warrants further opportunities that have been, in my opinion, unfairly withheld from her. I implore you not to release my private box today or in the coming days, for I must emphasize my profound disappointment upon discovering that my box has been reallocated for public use by the box office, purportedly under your instructions. Initially, I refrained from raising objections as I am averse to participating in scandalous matters. Moreover, I presume that your predecessors, Monsieur Debienne and Poligny, who consistently treated me with kindness, failed to apprise you of my peculiar preferences before their departure. However, my recent communication with Monsieur Debienne and Poligny, seeking clarification, has uncovered evidence of your knowledge regarding my memorandum book. This revelation leaves me with no choice but to conclude that my situation is being intentionally ridiculed. If we are to maintain a harmonious relationship, I implore you to refrain from depriving me of my private box. With these minor grievances in mind, I remain. My dear managers, yet your most humble and obedient servant, signed F. Delo. F. D. Elwo. Le Fantôme de l'Opéra. A request for Christine and a demand for box five. The joke continues, I see, but what does it all mean? Do they think we will give them an entire box for life just because they were managers of the opera? I am not in the mood to be the butt of this joke for much longer. It's all harmless. What do, what do they want? A box for this evening? Let's give box five to Monsieur Debienne and Poligny for tonight, if it's not already rented. A small gesture to appease this mysterious phantom.
In the heart of Paris, under the vast iron and glass canopy of the Montparnasse station, Raoul de Chagny paces anxiously. The urgency in his heart matches the fervor of the bustling crowd. I must see her, understand her silence. The train to Perosgirek, a journey sparked by a note from Christine, carries the weight of unspoken words and unfulfilled promises. My dearest Raoul, I write to you with a heart heavy with unspoken words and a mind clouded by the shadows of the past. As I pen these words, the memories of our shared childhood in the sunlit days of Perosgirek flood my thoughts, bringing both comfort and a piercing nostalgia. Tomorrow marks a day of profound solemnity for me. It is the anniversary of my dear father's passing. Find myself drawn to Pero, to the little church and the quiet graveyard where his soul rests. It is there amidst the silent whispers of the sea and the gentle caress of the wind that I feel closest to him. In these moments of solitude and reflection, I often find myself thinking of you, of the days when innocence was our companion and music our shared language. You who bravely ventured into the sea to retrieve my scarf, a gesture that has remained etched in my heart. I leave for Peros today, led by a sacred duty to honor the memory of my beloved father. I feel an inexplicable urge to share this part of my journey with you, to reconnect with a fragment of a past that seems both distant and intimately near. Should your heart and time allow, I would be comforted by your presence in Peros, perhaps in the quietude of that place, away from the prying eyes and clamorous voices of Paris, we might find a moment of peace and understanding, a moment to share memories, to speak of things left unsaid, and to listen to the silent songs of the past. I will be at the Inn of the Setting Sun, a quaint refuge that whispers stories of days gone by. If you decide to come, know that it will bring a ray of light to a heart that often finds itself lost in the shadows. With a heart full of hope and trepidation, Christine. As the countryside rolls by, Raoul immerses himself in memories, clutching Christine's letter like a lifeline. I leave for Perros, led by a sacred duty. The train journey gives way to the rhythm of a stagecoach. Raoul, alone with his thoughts, approaches Perros Girek, a place brimming with memories and shadows of the past. Once upon a time in a small village near Uppsala, there was a farmer who lived with his family. He tilled the land during the week and on Sundays. His violin sang at the church's lectern. This man had a little girl, Christine, whom he taught to read music before she could even read words. Father Dai, perhaps unaware of his own talent, played the violin like no one else. His reputation as the finest fiddler in Scandinavia spread far and wide, his music calling people to dance at weddings and feasts. Tragedy struck when Christine's mother, an invalid, passed away. The father, now living only for his daughter and music, sold their land and sought fame in Uppsala. Alas, 
fame was elusive, and misery was all they found. Returning to the countryside, they went from fair to fair, with Christine's voice accompanying her father's fiddle. It was at the Ljungby Fair where Professor Valerios discovered them and decided to change their lives forever. Those days at the fairs were enchanting. Father's violin drew people from all around, as if under a spell. Their bond grew deeper after the loss of Christine's mother. Father Dai's violin became their refuge, a bridge between their memories and the dreams. Christine, in music, we find our lost joys and speak the unspeakable. When Father Dai's health waned, they would travel to Perosgirek, where he found solace by the sea, his violin resonating with the waves. Listen, Christine, the sea understands our music. It carries our stories to faraway lands. At dusk, Father Dai would tell Christine and Raoul tales of the North, weaving stories of magic and lore. In the land of the midnight sun, there lived a king who could speak to the stars. And each night, the stars would whisper back, weaving tales of ancient mysteries and celestial destinies. Christine and Raoul, captivated, would sit close, hanging on every word. Papa, tell us about the Angel of Music. Does it really visit musicians? Ah, the Angel of Music, a celestial guide that visits only the purest of artists, whispering melodies from the heavens. Have you ever heard the Angel, Mr. Dai? No, my dear Raoul but I believe Christine might one day hear its divine voice. It visits those with a heart full of music. As the stars began to twinkle, Father Da'e would often speak of little Lottie, a character from his stories blessed by the angel of music. Little Lottie danced under the northern lights, her laughter echoing through the fjords. The angel watched over her, gifting her songs that echoed the beauty of the auroras. I wish the angel of music would visit me, Papa. I want to sing like little Lottie. Perhaps it will, my child. The angel comes to those who believe and who pour their soul into every note. Little Lottie thought of everything and thought of nothing. She was a summer bird, soaring in the golden rays of the sun, wearing on her blonde curls her spring crown. Her soul was as clear as her blue eyes. She cuddled her mother, was faithful to her doll, took great care of her dress, her red shoes, and her violin. But above all, she loved to hear the angel of music as she fell asleep. Father Dai's voice carried the rhythm of an ancient lullaby, weaving the tale of little Lottie into the fabric of the night. Papa, does little Lottie really hear the angel of music? Yes, my dear. In her dreams, the angel whispers melodies that dance like moonbeams on still waters. It's a gift given to those who cherish music with all their heart. Do you think we'll ever hear the angel of music, Christine? Maybe, Raoul. Papa says it comes to those with a pure heart and a love for music. I believe in it. 
In the world of music, miracles are as real as the notes we play. Keep your hearts open, and perhaps one day, the angel will visit you too. He arrives at the inn of the setting sun, his heart racing with a mix of apprehension and longing. The inn of the setting sun. Upon my word, there is no other place like it, and it's very comfortable. He remembered that in the old days, they used to tell great stories there. How his heart beats. What will she say when she sees him? Ah, Monsieur le Vicomte, what a surprise. What brings you to peril? Just passing through, Madame Tricot, stopping by to reminisce. The door opens, and there she stands, Christine. Time seems to pause as their eyes meet. You came, Raoul. I sensed you would. Christine, I had to see you. Your note. It left so many questions. Yes, Raoul. There is much to say. Let's find a quiet corner. Seated away from prying eyes, they face each other. The inn's warmth does little to thaw the chill of uncertainty between them. Tell me, Christine, why the silence? Why flee the stage? It's complicated, Raoul. The stage, it brings both joy and shadows. Shadows? Is it about the opera being haunted? The ghost? Yes, and more. Raoul, there are things you may not understand. Their conversation, laced with half-truths and hidden fears, continues into the evening. The fire crackles, mirroring the flickering emotions within them. As the flames dance, casting shadows, Raoul and Christine delve deeper into their conversation, circling the truths they dare not speak. Christine, why do you evade my questions? We used to share everything. Raoul, it's not that simple. There are forces at play greater than you know. The conversation meanders, touching the past and skirting the present. Raoul's heart aches with unspoken love. Christine's eyes shimmer with unshed tears. Please, Christine, trust me, I've always been here for you. I know, Raoul. And I cherish that. But some burdens must be borne alone. The bell tolls, marking the hour. Christine's gaze drifts towards the window, lost in thought. The hour grows late. Will you not share your burden? It's getting late. We should retire. Tomorrow, perhaps, I can explain? Christine, after all these years, I... I never forgot you. Raoul, so much has happened. I... I've been visited by the Angel of Music. Angel of Music? Christine, what do you mean? After my father passed, the Angel came to me. She's been guiding me, teaching me. She, but Christine, the voice I heard in your dressing room, it was a man's voice. What? Christine. No. Raoul, you're mistaken. The Angel of Music is a gentle presence, not a man. She's been my guardian. 
my mentor. But, Christine, I heard him. He said, you must love me. It was a man's voice, commanding and real. You're not listening. The angel is not a man. She's been with me, guiding me through my music. You must believe me, Raoul. Uh, I, uh, I want to understand, Christine. But it's hard to believe. Are you sure it's not someone deceiving you? How can you doubt me, Raoul? After all we've shared. You think I'm being deceived? I know what I've heard, what I've felt. Christine, I'm just worried for you. It's all so... unbelievable. In the heart of the night, under a sky of stars and whispered secrets, Christine's revelation casts a new light on her mysterious talent, leaving Raoul torn between concern and the desire to believe. As the moon ascends, their conversation is left unresolved, an echo of the unresolved mystery that envelops Christine's life and now draws Raoul into its enigmatic embrace. They part for the night, each lost in their own turmoil. Raoul's mind races with questions, Christine's heart with fears. Raoul lies awake, listening to the night's whisper. The inn of the setting sun sleeps, but his restless heart does not. What secrets haunt you, Christine? What shadows lurk in your silence? Suddenly, a faint sound catches Raoul's attention. Footsteps, light and cautious, creep along the corridor. Raoul rises, curiosity guiding him. Silently, he follows the soft echo of those steps down the dimly lit hall. The footsteps lead him to a window, overlooking the moonlit village. Below, a solitary figure, unmistakably Christine, hurries towards the shadowy outline of the church. Where are you going, Christine, in the dead of night? Raoul watches, torn between following her and respecting her privacy. The mystery deepens and the night holds its breath. 